Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it was a sleepless night in the sleepy little town of Ray, Colorado last night, at least at our house. Um, we had a daughter that went to prom, and I, I think I'm okay with that still. And uh, we had a son that went to after prom, and uh, so when I got up at 5.30 this morning, everybody seemed to be safe in the house, but... Uh, it was uh, weird going to bed without them around, um, and so I didn't sleep too, too well. I anticipated that because um, I gave the young man an application to date my daughter, and he has yet to finish filling that out. <laughs> and uh, Fathers, if you need a copy of that, I can get it to you. Ask helpful questions like, um, what's your IQ? Um, What's your Boy Scout rank and merit badges you've earned? Uh, in 50 words or less, what does don't touch my daughter mean to you? <laughs> so it has good questions on there. But he's, he's slacking off. Um, so since I knew I'd be sleepy today, I thought I'd get out an old sermon. This is why pastors only stay in one church for three years or so. Because the lectionary is only three years long, and uh, pastors get out the sermon that they wrote three years ago and just rehash it on you all. And people start catching on in year three and a half or so. Um, they start, hey, I think I heard this one not long ago. Well, just so you know, I don't do that. I have proof. I first wrote this and preached this in October of 1997. So that's what, 17 years? My math is so bad. How many? 18? Wow, maybe, that's, maybe I'm actually 54 or something. I don't even know my own age. Um, <laughs> this is the sixth time I've preached this. Yeah, that's pretty funny. Um, <laughs> starts second chairs. Um, just so you know, and nobody really cares about this, but I did get an A- minus on this sermon. Um, wouldn't it be fun if we all started grading the sermon every week? In fact, if you, in fact, um, here's a form that I could start passing out. Person evaluated, your name. See, that, that, that gets away from the anonymity kind of thing. Uh, circle the number that best describes your observation. One being weak, five being excellent. And we were harsh on each other. Of course, it was harsh preaching, rookie preachers preaching at each other in a classroom. It was painful. Probably as painful, not physically, but probably as painful as when nursing students are practicing poking one another or dental students. I mean, have you ever thought about that when you're in the dental chair and they're poking you with that thing? And it's like, how did they learn this? And I've actually asked my dentist, who is my wife's... Um, cousin, and they practice on each other in school. That would make it enough for me never to be a dentist. Um, ah, golly, you are terrible at this. Well, I've never done this before. Um, 
you know, at least my school, it's like, you are horrible. Well, I've never preached before. You know, good point. Um, we're all pretty bad. Uh, let me read you a couple of the comments that the professor had for me. So in case uh, we can see if I can actually improve upon them. Um, his name is Dr. Scott Winnig. He actually still pre- uh, teaches at Denver Seminary. Um, he said, I started off well. You might be thinking, well, that's out the window. Uh, he's no longer starting off well. And then I slowed down some. Uh, I looked and sounded less confident. Because, you know, when you're preaching, you need to look confident and sound confident. Um, I need to work on my transitions. And that's probably still true because I'm like, oh, look, a squirrel. Uh, and I just kind of, some of you are like, huh, where are we and what's going on? Uh, he said it was good because I referenced the text. I went back to the Bible. I encourage people to, to read it. Um, but in parentheses, he said, Steve, do you believe this? <laughs> That's a really bad comment on your sermon. That's why I got an A minus, probably. Do you believe this? Your structure was okay. Um, we were mean to each other in school. It was painful. He says here at the end that the good parts were my structure, which is really funny because that's like my worst part of my sermons now, probably because of my random abstract stuff. He says my weakest part was I didn't illustrate well. I didn't apply it well that uh, I need to make it come alive. I need to, to, to help people really feel the text that what's going on here. So I thought, hey, 18 years later, I'll give it another try. Um, it's so interesting when you go back and you find your old papers. There's all kinds of spelling errors in this. Apparently, I stayed up late at night trying to get this done, cramming on it before I had to preach it that morning in school. By the way, that never, ever happens anymore. <laughs> I'm never, ever cramming to get a sermon done anymore. Um, and if I was, I wouldn't admit it. The uh, passage I preached on and why this came to mind was because I preached on a passage in Daniel chapter 9. And uh, this has kind of turned into a, a little series or a little mini-series on Daniel and his life uh, because we've been looking at this issue called prayer. And, and one of my desires isn't to teach you how to pray because... Quite honestly, they go out on the street and they ask people, do you pray? And by and large, I mean, it's in the 90s, 95, 98 percentile kind of a category. Everybody prays in America. In fact, I listened to this interview with this man and he said, I was in the military and atheists even pray. And it's that old saying, there's no atheists in foxholes. Now, I don't know if that's completely true or not because I'm not an atheist and I've never been in a foxhole, so I can't really apply that to myself. But the notion behind that is there's always something in our lives that will cause us, that will drive us to pray. There's always something that will get big, nasty, crazy, scary enough in life to make you go, oh, God, help me. At least that's the premise, right, of that saying? 
And what I've been wanting to do is not give you a, so here's how you pray, because I hope and trust that everybody has some idea of how you pray, and it can be as simple as, oh, God, help me. And, and it's helpful sometimes to help people pray, and maybe next week we'll do that. But the last few weeks, what I've wanted us to do is to look at why pray. Why pray? And today, really, I want us to look at what drives you to prayer? What are those situations, those things in life that drive you to pray? Is there anything that drives you to pray? And by the way, if you read this after the service, I'll let you read it. I'm not re-preaching this. I'm doing it completely different this time because I didn't like the, how this went, even though I got an A. Why do we pray? What is strong enough to drive you to prayer? It's interesting because we think of Daniel as this guy who was all about prayer. And the reason we think that is because like last week when we looked at, he got thrown in the lion's den because of his prayer life. And I asked the question, how many of you get in trouble because of your prayer life? And Daniel was such a a, a faithful prayer that he got thrown into the lion's den. But one of the things that is interesting about the book of Daniel is that there's only three recorded prayers in the entire book of Daniel. It doesn't tell us what he prayed that got him into the lion's den. In fact, it's not the content of his prayer that mattered except for one thing. He prayed to God. He didn't pray to the king. And that was the one thing that got him in trouble. He prayed to God, not to the king. And so he got thrown in the lion's den, but it doesn't tell us the content of his prayer. And there's one place it tells us the content of his prayer. It's earlier in the book, and it's basically a praise to God for giving him revelation on the king's dream. And it's like, thank you, God, for answering my prayer kind of a prayer. But in Daniel chapter 9, we find a 550-word prayer. We find a prayer from Daniel. It's the only long extended prayer that this man of prayer we have in the book. And you'd think that a man of prayer, you'd have more of his prayers, right? But we don't. In fact, it's kind of interesting because this prayer was prayed during chapter 6 at some point. Because chapter 6, we find that Darius, the Mede, has come in and he's gotten rowdy and he's booted out the Babylonians. He's taken over in Babel, in Babylon. And Daniel, we're told, is praying. He's facing Jerusalem. And so there's a, there is a potential that Daniel chapter 9 is a prayer that he prays as he's facing Jerusalem. And what I want us to see here is why Daniel prays. And I want us to all wrestle with why do we pray? Why do you pray? What drives you to prayer? Is it when you're nervous about a test that's coming? Is it when you're worried about a health issue for yourself or a loved one, a family member? Is it when that there's an economic downturn and you're concerned that you might lose your position? Is it when you can't quite make sense of a situation and you're struggling and you're, maybe you're depressed and you can't figure out the way forward in your life? Maybe it's when your kid has been asked to prom by a young man and it drives you to prayer. 
Maybe it's when you're at church and your stomach starts rumbling. You think, preacher, let's move it on. What drives your prayer life? When does it get to the point that you decide to go to God? What would drive Daniel to prayer? You see, many people think that the answer to that is, well, the king made this decree that nobody could pray except for to the king. And so his prayer must have been, oh, God, the king's bad. Make him go away. Let's get a new king. How about me, says Daniel. And that's not the content of his prayer in Daniel chapter 9. What does it, what does it take to drive a man like Daniel to prayer? Let's read. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. The screen will have the, the words for you if you don't have your Bible. If you have your Bible, go to Psalms and then turn towards the back of the book a little ways and, and you'll come to Jeremiah and Lamentations and Ezekiel and eventually get to Daniel. It's right in there. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, this is the same guy that is in chapter 6 named, a Mede by descent who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Now, that's a really interesting sentence. You probably didn't think it was that interesting, but I'm going to make it come to life for you now. You see, this is an interesting sentence because he is reading the letter that Jeremiah the prophet, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that Jeremiah the prophet, Jeremiah 29, it is captured for us in the Bible. When Jeremiah the prophet wrote to the captives in Babylon, he had words for them. He said, settle down because you're going to be in Babylon for a long time, 70 years. Many of you aren't going to return home. You need to be getting married, building homes, finding brides and grooms for your daughters and your sons. Pray for the city. And Daniel here, did you catch how he referred to Jeremiah's writings? Scripture. I thought it took a long time for something to be called Scripture. But Daniel here, and he's in his 80s because he was drugged to Babylon when he was in his early to mid-teens. He's now in Babel. He's been there for nearly 70 years using his life as a measuring stick. He says, Jeremiah said we'd be here 70 years. Time's up, God. And this motivates him to pray. He, he calls Jeremiah's letter scripture. Now, why would he call it scripture? He's come to believe, he's come to see that God really did speak to Jeremiah and he spoke through Jeremiah. And this is God's word. It is scripture to the Hebrews. And he's sitting there in Babylon 70 years or so later and he's reading this and he realizes we're not Looking like we're about to leave. It looks like we're stuck in Babylon. And he starts to pray. 
Now, what would a mighty man of God like Daniel pray? What would he pray when he reads about God rescuing his people from Babylon? What would be the content of his prayer? Or or better yet, what would be the content of your prayer? How would you start this off? How would you address God if you had read in Scripture, Thus saith the Lord, I'm going to do this. Let's see how Daniel begins. Because I think, for me, it's different than how I would have begun it. And it's really interesting because if you want to grow in how and when and where and all that kind of stuff to, to pray... One of the places that Daniel and all of the people in the Scripture show us that they started their prayer life with is with Scripture. Now, listen to what Daniel does. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. What? You know, I was cleaning out my barbecue grill because it's getting to be that time of year. And uh, I had some soot build up and some grease, and I had to remove this stuff. And it's been a project. And my wife was like, When are you going to clean this up? Because that's what she does. Because I leave messes around. Because I'm getting to it, right? And ashes are nasty. I mean, they're clean, they're super clean, but they're nasty. You don't want them on you. You don't want to breathe them in. You don't want to handle them. You don't want to be around them. And they're really difficult to dispose of. City of Ray doesn't want them in their truck because it might blow it up somewhere, which would be kind of cool, right? (laughs) I mean, you have to dispose of ashes carefully, and you have to be all careful because even old ashes, they could catch on fire, you know, because you never know. They can smolder a long time. So I've got this little tin can i stick stuff in metal clank can and i put all the ashes in i handle them in that way and all this kind of stuff and here i read that daniel put on sackcloth and ashes he he put one of those we use them for uh potato sack races when i was a kid you know you get the sackcloth and burlap sack and you you race each other we should do that some morning at church no i'm just kidding Scott would not be impressed with the structure of this sermon. He cut a hole and some arms out, and he put on sackcloth. And he put ashes on himself. Smeared them on his face. What, what is this? What is he doing? He just read some really good news. God is going to help Israel get out of Babylon. He's returning them to Jerusalem. Why does he respond by putting on burlap sackcloth and ashes? What is going on in Daniel's mind? Why is he doing this? My guess is if it was us, we'd be rejoicing. My guess is if it was us, we'd be thinking, oh, this is God's promise and I name it and I claim it and it's mine and this is going to happen. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And I've been around some Christians that even if you think negatively about some of God's promises, you can like trumpet somehow by negative thinking. What? That's all Daniel's doing is negative thinking. 
It's not like he's just reaching out and grabbing his victory in Jesus. It's not like he's just reaching out and grabbing the victory and taking hold and claiming it. No, my, we're going to go back to the promise. I get that twang sometimes. I don't know why. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. It's a picture of mourning. They did this when people died. It's a picture of sinfulness and humility. They're humbling themselves. He's also not eating. He's fasting. He's taking this insanely seriously. And listen to the content of his prayer. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Confessed? Daniel, you got stuff to confess? Last I checked, you're the only one reading Scripture. You're the only one, it seems, that we have stories of that's reading Jeremiah the prophet. You're the only one that got tossed in the lion's den for not obeying the king. You're the only one who seems to have a direct line with God at this point in time in Israel's history, and you are confessing? Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. You know, it's like he's piling up these terms. It wasn't enough to say, we have sinned and done wrong. Give me some illustrations of that, says God. And Daniel lays it on thick. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. That's a long confession for a guy that feels doesn't have much to confess. Do you have anything to confess? Do we, as a people, have anything to confess? Because did you notice what he's doing here? This is a corporate prayer. And many times we have this notion that it's just about me and Jesus. I met with a farmer this past week. He confessed to me that he hasn't had his family in church very much over the years. And he does his stuff with God in the tractor. That's cool. God's omni. He's everywhere. Why do you confess that to me? I think you realize I've been missing out on something. There's a corporate piece to this. And part of this corporate piece is that we have collective guilt before God. <laughs> that's not what he had in mind, but that's what Daniel has in mind. We have collective guilt before God as his people. The church has done a poor job oftentimes representing Jesus Christ. <laughs> if you don't believe me, go ask somebody who avoids this place like the plague. See if they have a real problem with Jesus or with God. Most times you will find people that don't have a real problem with Jesus or with God. You'll find lots of people who have lots of problem with other people who claim to know Jesus and to know God. 
The church in America has a lot to repent of. We have a lot to repent of because we have taken the most powerful, amazing message and turned it into something that it is not. We have taken this message that says there is nothing you could ever do to measure up to God. And we have said, if you dress up a certain way, if you show up at a certain time, if you say the right words, then God will accept you. And we might as well be Mormons or Muslims because we often teach a gospel of works, a works righteousness. And not only that, this is not coming off of yours and I's lips. This is through behavior. As a book that I love, the title, we have all become accidental Pharisees. We judge. We condemn. We look down. And we don't even have to use words. Maybe next Sunday should be sackcloth and ashes Sunday. (laughs) Don't make it a competition. Well, I got the best sackcloth. Check me out, right? That's what we do. We make it about us. The gospel is about Christ. When the message of salvation is about God's glory and God's goodness. And this is not lost in Daniel because then he moves and he says, Lord, you are righteous. You are righteous, he says. I thought it was Daniel who was righteous. I always thought good things about Daniel. But Daniel has a correct perspective of himself. You are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. It's like he's continuing to beat himself up. This guy's got really bad self-esteem, we'd say. It is we who are covered with shame, the people of Judah and Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. You know, one of the things I love to do is figure out, why did the Holy Spirit say, that's good Bible, print it. Out of all the prayers that Daniel prayed in his lifetime, why is it this one that gets reported to us? You know, Daniel, the man of prayer. Why is it this one that gets written down? Why is it this one that's preserved? So so several thousand years later, we can read it. Why? I think it's because God knew that humanity has a tendency to take sin lightly. We have a tendency to take sin way too lightly. Does this feel like Daniel takes sin lightly? It's almost depressing, isn't it? We're covered in shame. He said that a couple times. We've rebelled. He said that a couple times. We're wicked. We've turned away. We didn't listen. We didn't obey. Now, parents, aren't there times you want your kid to grovel? 
recognize that they really did mess up this time? I mean, come on, let's be honest. This is church. You should be anyways, right? I mean, aren't there times that you've yelled at your kid or spoken to your kid and you said, ah, you didn't mean it. (laughs) And if you didn't say it, their brother or sister said it. Well, he didn't mean it. Say you're sorry and mean it, right? Sorry. I mean, we can always tell. We can tell, can't we? We can tell when somebody is truly sorry. You've probably watched video of athletes, of presidents, of politicians who are apologizing and confessing and saying, sorry, and then the pundits break it down for ad nauseum afterwards. Well, I don't think he was really sorry. I mean, look at the eyes and look at what he's doing here. And he rolled his eyes briefly. And then he said this. And this is not true apology. Let's have our lie detector actually run it through that. I mean, it just gets crazy. But if we can all tell when there is sincerity, can't God? If we have that ability, you think God can tell sincerity of heart? You you think God is able to, I don't think you really meant it. In fact, later today, you're going to do it again. I don't think you really meant it. Daniel is here. His posture is one of mourning and sorrow. His posture is one of humility. His words, they build up. They they just say over and over and over again, I've messed up. I'm a wretch. I have sinned. Not only him, all the people of Israel, near and far, who you have scattered, did not listen to you. He goes on and he continues to bum everybody out. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled. This is, by the way, what we call confession. He's confessing that what they did was wrong and God was right in his judgment of them. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does. Yet we have not obeyed him. How many times can he say this in different ways? Do you see what he's trying to tell us? Now, our Lord, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. I think that's three times now. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. 
We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. That's a prayer. Why is it such a good prayer? I mean, maybe you don't agree with me. I think it's a great prayer. Holy Spirit thought it was such a good prayer. He said, that's good Bible, print it. Do you see, do you see the genius that Daniel pulls off in this prayer? Do you see the humility? Do you see where he goes with this? Do you see where he appeals? Do you see where the appeal lies? He says, I don't do this because you're lucky to have me on the team, God. I don't do this because I'm such a wonderful guy and I'm the first one that found it in the Bible and I read it and therefore... He said, do this, Lord, because of your great name. Perhaps we're in a day and age where the church needs to pray these kinds of prayers. And we don't need to pray these kind of prayers because, you know, Lord, make Ray great because we like it a lot. Make the U.S. great because we happen to like it a lot. Make First Christian Church great because we happen to like it a lot. Maybe we need to pray these prayers of confession and repentance and we appeal to God's character and we say, make these things great because of yourself, because of who you are, because it brings you glory, because you are righteous, because we, the church, bear your name. Maybe this prayer is in here to correct us with our, with our presumptions on God. God's grace is not a doormat, a place to wipe your feet. God's grace, God's grace is a gift a most cherished gift, a most undeserved gift. That's the definition of it. None of us, none of us are worthy. None of us could ever be good enough. None of us, there's anything in us that God from heaven looks down and says, oh my gosh, got to get that guy saved for sure because that would really help the team. And yet, in God's mercy and grace, he looks down from heaven and says, those folks need to be saved for my name's sake, for my glory, and I will use them for my name's sake and my glory. See, that's why I'm a pastor. When I came here, I didn't think I'd be here this long. It wasn't my plan. I was going to climb churchy corporate ladders, I guess. This was a stepping stone. On to the next thing. I had plans. I was going to go get my PhD. I was going to study Hebrew. I was going to grade people on Bible stuff. 
That would have been fun. God didn't want me to grade people on Bible stuff. He wanted me to stay here. He wanted me to be a living example of how he can use bozos. And I don't mean that in a funny way. He wanted me to be an example of a person who is struggling to follow Christ. He wanted me to be an example of a family who struggles to follow Christ. He wanted me to be a person who seeks to try to follow Christ. Three steps forward, two steps back, and to let folks watch it happen. And it wasn't for my namesake. Because Lord knows, if it was for my namesake, I'm not doing so good at that. It is for his name's sake. Let us be driven to prayer to confess. Let that be what just brings the best prayers out of you. Because you look at the chasm between you and your father and you realize that God in his mercy and his grace has come near to you and you can only respond by repent, by, by repenting and confessing. May that solicit the greatest prayers out of us. Paul in his prayers never ever prays for his church's circumstances to change. He prays that they would know God. And do you know what the first step in knowing God is? Confession and repentance. My prayer for you is that you would know God. That we would be people that confess and repent and we rely on God's righteousness to save